encountered in your life. Mm-hmm. Chef's tits. <laughs> and you buy it. So excited to enjoy this over your Christmas dinner. Perfect, yes. Along with many, many other bottles of wine that were purchased. <laughs> Truly, too many. Yes, I recall. Too many. Were there multiple magnums involved? There was only one magnum. Okay. Actually, that's not true. There were two. My apologies. <laughs> um, oh, God, too many. Way too many bottles of wine. And you're carrying all of this to the car. Yes. And it's COVID times, so, you know, you've been working. Like, we work in restaurants. There's a lot of people around. I got to make sure, you know? So I'm panicking. I'm high panicking. <laughs> I got all my bags. I've literally taken one of the fucking rapid tests, being like, meh, this will, we'll see. I, we'll find out on the drive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, when else would we have had time to do this? <laughs> I'm trying to balance... All of my clothes, like, and stuff for overnight. Mm -hmm. And nothing's in a proper bag, correct? No, never. Because I just always assume that I can fit it into one tote. (sighs) Yep. And so I'm carrying, like, multiple tote bags, (laughs) the wine. I have literally the wooden box for the Magnum. And Mm -hmm. I'm trying to balance the COVID rapid test on top of it. And so I go downstairs. I get into the car. What do I do? But I fucking break the bottle of this sweet godlike nectar. The Tokai. It's on the ground with the rapid test. <laughs> test seems like it's negative, but it's a few minutes before it's technically ready to go. And nobody got COVID that year. It was fine. <laughs> covered in covered in wine, wine and glass shards. It was truly the greatest tragedy that's ever befallen my life wine wise. Actually, that's not true. I've dumped wine on people before, so it's fine. Um, but it was the greatest tragedy that's personally affected me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, I think the, the amount of times when I'm, like, doing that, like, you know, in, like, magazines wherever there's, like, celebrities carrying, like, yeah. like female celebrities carrying, like, 17 things in one hand. Oh, I'll be doing bless. something like that with, like, bottles of wine and, like, everything. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever dropped and broken one. No, I've never. Maybe no, I don't think so. Never professionally dropped a bottle of wine. Only personally. And I blame the box. It wasn't mm. sealed, so I thought that it was in the box, and then it just tipped out of the box. Ugh. Yeah. Actually, that happened to Blake and I with a bottle of... Port, right? Yes. No, oh. sherry. Oh. In the liquor store. And it was just like the kind of thing where it's like the lid just like popped off and the bottle just like slid out. Oh. It was fine, but it was just like, oh, we were going to save this, but now we have to drink it because it's like the corks up <laughs> that's so annoying it was fine it was delicious and then we're like okay i guess we'll buy another bottle later <laughs> well what a struggle we've all faced so difficult you know what's another struggle that faces the farming community oh no the fungus botrytis scenario incredible pew 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 the segues on this final episode of pantry staples not final ever just final F- for this season yes, okay the yeah. sporgensburg <laughs> has to end um, so yes. Hello, I'm, I'm Marika. Oh, and I'm Emily. And <laughs> we're not deep enough into coffees yet. No, truly not. Hang on. ASMR. I like that these people gave us lots of little crushed ices. I agree, actually. I never want big ice. I always want little ice. Except, you know, big ice is fun too, actually. What am I saying? I just, I like that there's different kinds of ice. I do too. <laughs> I know it's so stupid, but I just love that humans have been like, Mastery over nature. Now we can have ice all year round. I'm just like, what kind of shape of ice do you want? We've got tons. We've like, got little. we got shaved. We've got 
We've got ones Round. that are shaped like freaking stars and like flowers and spheres, and people have decided to hand carve them sometimes. Yeah. It's a triumph of the human spirit. Ice. Maybe that's our next season. <laughs> Just she icy. No. Um, well, we could talk about Slurpees, so that's a very important thing. Very. It's a cultural touchstone. Um, but we're not talking about that today. I'm talking about Botrytis, and I had a really succinct introduction, and now it's been ruined. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> okay, so Botrytis. Yes. Scenaria. Novarod, if you're nasty. Yeah. Um, it's a type of Ascomycota within the fungi kingdom. Other Ascomycota. Coaties mm-hmm. include the antibiotic penicillin, Ooh. Stilton blue cheese, and the fungus responsible for athlete's foot. So it's in this family. What do we know about all these things? They stinky. Stink, stink, stinks. Stink city, except for this isn't stink city. This is delicious. Well, but- or gross, actually, which is the point <laughs> of it all. Botrytis can go both ways. Of course it can. It's like all things. It's a bisexual icon. Ah! Um, in this here Pride Month. Botrytis. No, botrytis. <laughs> so, botrytis scenario is a fungus that affects many plants, famously grapes, but that's not to say it's only grapes. Sure. I think if we actually examine it, grapes are the only thing where we see any positive impact from it. Otherwise, it just ruins the crop. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting because we've seen like thinking about like ergot, which is so mm-hmm. specific. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of funguses will only attached to one thing. No, I mm-hmm. thought that was interesting too. Mm-hmm. Um, let me tell you about how many things it affects. Rhubarb, snowdrops, <gasps> white meadow for western hemlock, Douglas firs, cannabis, and mm-hmm. lactuca sativa. Like yes. more things as well, but those yeah. are like those are like the main things. Yeah. Those seem like really different kinds of plants. I know. Oh, and strawberries. We haven't even talked about strawberries. Oh. It is actually a huge issue for strawberry crops and tomato crops even in Mm. farm situations as well like they're both really really sensitive to it interesting so that seems like isn't rhubarb a nightshade as well is it like if we got a couple nightshades i don't know i don't think it's specific to that though i think it has to do with um the like way that it grows Mm. mainly because the point of it is it's something that forms when there's no um like ventilation between leaves and fruit. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Like I'm getting when you. No, no. Yeah. Please. So it's a necrof- necrotrophic fungus, meaning it kills plant cells and uses their contents to support their own growth, which is very common of a fungus. Obviously, yeah. we know that. Um, it is known in viticulture as botrytis bunch rot. Okay. So there's noble rot, which is what causes beautiful, delicious, sweet dessert wines, mm-hmm. and then you have gray rot or bunch rot which is the thing that ruins like entire sections yes wineries Mm -hmm. um so as i said gray rot that's the result of consistently wet or humid conditions and typically results in the loss of the affected bunches the second which is known as noble rot like i said occurs when drier conditions follow wetter and can result in distinctive sweet dessert wines so when we're talking about these we're talking so turns or asus I don't know how to pronounce it, but anyways, of the Tokai, and then, like, those are kind of the two predominant ones that we see. I don't know, so, so Terrence, because of Noble Rod? Yeah. Ah! Yeah, because I thought I thought it was more like a... It's not fortified. Yeah, I thought it was more like ice wine kind of a situation. Well, I mean, in a lot of they ways, kind they're of, very similar. Yeah. Because the principle behind it is, let's kind of dry these not dry but let's let's shrivel these grapes up Mm -hmm. so the sugars condense let's dehydrate them yeah which is exactly what you're doing kind of Mm -hmm. in both cases interesting um 
So the species name Botrytis cinerea is derived from the Latin for grapes like ashes. Although poetic, the grapes refers to the bunching of the fungal spores on their conidiophores, and ashes just refers to the grayish color of the spores on mass. There's also a suggestion that the word Botrytis comes from two Greek words, which means grape and disease. Interesting. So like, it is grody out there. It's gro- but they're saying that like the grapeness is not even because it goes on grapes. It's because that's the way. It's like, the that's way the that shape they, of the actual. Yeah, the actual like fungus. Oh stuff. wow! Yeah, which is cool. Hey, it is. So, gray mold affects more than two hundred dicotyledonous plant species, and a few monoclytidinous plants found in temperate and subtropical regions, and potentially over a thousand species. So. She crazy. Yeah. Serious economic losses result of this, obviously. Um, so it infects the mature or senescent. Sorry, this is too much science for me to be talking <laughs> about uh, tissues. Uh, prior to harvest or seedlings, there's a wide variety of hosts infected by this pathogen. So it could be a protein crop, a fiber crop, oil crops, horticultural crops, which I think is interesting. So you're saying like, oh, there's some nightshades, but it's not that. It's literally so many different kinds of yes. things. Mm-hmm. The organs that are actually affected within the plants are the fruits, the flowers, the leaves, the storage organs, and the shoots. So, like, it can be That's the like entire... like, everything. Yeah, it can be yeah. the entire part of it. Wow. And when I was Googling, like, my information, the number one thing I kept seeing was this moldy, gross, yucky strawberry. No. And it made me so sad. That is so sad. Because oh, strawberries are so they're happy. They're so happy. <laughs> oh. So... It's like, as I said, gray velvety splotches that are going to develop on any kind of these areas. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see. What are the conditions that kind of generate this best? Mm -hmm. Gray mold favors moist, humid, and warm environmental conditions. So between 18 to 24 degrees Celsius, temperature, relative humidity, and wetness duration produce a conducive environment that is favorable for the inoculation of the mycelium. Uh, Controlled environments such as crop production greenhouses provide the moisture and high temperatures that favor the spreading and development of the pathogen. Mm. So it's not even something that's just like, it's, I mean, a lot of things do that though. Like when you have, I don't want to say like mass produced, but when you have, Mm. um, yeah, mass produced or like specifically designed industrialized farming. Thank you. Industrialized is the word I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. When you have industrialized farming, a lot of things do fester in those spaces. But it makes sense. Like it's you're you're creating a favorable environment for, for the plants. So then of course, yeah, other things are gonna grow too. Like they would naturally, but and again, in the outside world there's more things to like kill it off and And just like space too is I think mm. when I was thinking about this, all I could think was like, you know, when we picture cattle crops that are like really or like cattle that are really tightly packed mm-hmm. into spaces yes. and like things grow and fester because they're just in close contact. Like that's kind of how I kept thinking about yeah. like, Oh, the tomato plants that are just tightly pressed together. And then you have all of this mold develop basically. Yeah. It's so easy to spread. Anyways, <laughs> um, standing water on plant leaf surfaces also creates a space for spores to germinate humid conditions. Like I said, these can be the result of improper irrigation practice like I said, the plants being too close together or the structure of the greenhouses not allowing for efficient ventilation and airflow. Ventilation at night significantly induce, uh, reduces the incidence of gray mold. So hmm. I think that's the thing in greenhouses. But if you actually look at like wineries or mm-hmm. vineyards, sorry, what is going to be helpful is like those really moist, like foggy kind of times at like night slash early morning. Yeah. Then a hot day to burn that to, like, off. To kill it off. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. you have to have kind of both. And it's not even killed off. It's just to keep it in check. Right. Yeah, so it can't, like, 
Yeah. And when you're saying that, is that to create like the noble rot that we That's want? That's to make the noble rot. Yeah. Because yeah, otherwise you want just like hot dry. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tim Martiniuk of Stoneboat Winery in the Okanagan actually uh-huh. says, Noble rot tends to happen in the portion of the vineyards that are closer to the river. On cool fall mornings, mist from the Okanagan River drifts from the vineyards and condenses on the berries, which can encourage botrytis. It can occur anywhere in the vineyard depending on how wet a year is, but we manage blocks of other varietals develop or differently to prevent the mold from developing. So I thought that was interesting, like mm-hmm. the varietal being significant, which of course makes sense because yeah. the skin is so different between each mm-hmm. varietal. Like I said, the fungus removes water from the grapes, leaving behind a higher percentage of solids such as sugar, high acids, and minerals, which all yeah. of which are very important to wine production, and especially that high acid that they're leaving behind with the sugar is what produces some of these wines that can age for such a considerable amount of time. Yeah, and it's like kind of like starting, well, it's almost like starting the fermentation process for you inside exactly. the grape. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously... We've said it's a sweet wine, but it's also more intense. It's concentrated. It's said to have aromas of honeysuckle and a bitter finish on the palate, which I personally have never really noticed. But also, I don't have the most sensitive of palate. Honeysuckle? Oh, I've definitely... No, no, the oh, bitterness. The oh, honeysuckle, bitterness. you can tell every yeah. time. That's mm-hmm. just it. That's what you're there for. Yeah, baby. Come on. Hmm. So... Let's see. As you said, the fermentation process is initially caused by nature. The combination of geology, climate, and specific weather leads to a particular balance of beneficial fungal. A balance of the beneficial fungal, though. Like, it's not one specific kind, and it's not a certain level. Like, you have to keep it in check. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, what is, like, a very famous representation of this? What could it be? Well, no, I not that. Don't. No. <laughs> so... One winery that does this is the Chateau Yquem, which mm. is the only Premier Cru Supérieur uh, wine in Bordeaux that's a sweet wine. So largely due to the vineyard's susceptibility to noble rot. So it's mm. literally earned this incredibly high designation yeah. because of this rot. It's like they're just taking something that could be seen as a problem. And they're like, oh. no, 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 like we're owning flip it. Like, it this is, it's a total flip and reverse. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. But it obviously makes the process a lot more complicated mm-hmm. for winemaking. Uh, fermentation is a lot more complex. Botrytis produces antifungal compounds that kill yeast and often results in the fermentation stopping before the wine has, sorry, accumulated sufficient levels of alcohol. Oh. Which is why I think a lot of the times, partly I think we often think of like once, I mean for winemaking, like the sugars are something that happen in things that have lower alcohol. Yes. Because all the alcohol hasn't been, like all the sugars haven't been converted to alcohol. Yeah. But this is literally saying it's hard to actually make it more alcohol. It's hard to convert those sugars because there mm-hmm. are so much of them. And there's this fungus that's actively stopping it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well that, why does it, I wonder why, like what it does to stop the fermentation. Like, is it just like eating up all the yeast? It's I like, think it's Yeah. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or like infecting the plant right. in a way that it can't produce the yeast. But I would assume it's eating. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about bunchrot just for a hot second. We'll mm-hmm. skip over to that. So that's the negative effect yeah. of botrytis. So it causes huge losses for this wine industry. Like millions of dollars of loss. <laughs> yeah. Like truly crazy. Yeah. Um, it's always present on the fruit set. However, it requires a wound to start a bunchrot infection. Oh. So like if you have conditions that create this fungus and then it's there, it's on the skin but it will not penetrate into it unless you have a wound. So it could come from insects, wind, accidental damage, like literally the tiniest of little pricks, and then it can get into the skin. Right. Um, So there's a number of fungicides that are produced to deal with this. They should be applied at bloom, bunch closure, and at Verizon, which is the most, uh, I don't know, weird word that I've ever seen. Didn't look (laughs) it up. Um, The most important being the bloom application. But Mm -hmm. a lot of places I don't believe actually use these fungicides. Like... 
I think that there's definitely a trend towards like not using. Exactly. So like either you have places that are like very organic or you have like regulations in place that kind of stipulate what you can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, but like they are around for large industrial produced wines. For sure. Um, let's see. Some winemakers are known to use the German method of fermentation and prefer having a 5% bunch rot rate in their grapes and will usually hold the grapes on the vine a week longer than normal. I did not know that was a thing, and it's very weird. They're just like, no, we like it. We're keeping it. We get some Frankie in there. Yeah. Oh, the Germans. (laughs) Yep. Uh, So, obviously, very devastating to the economy. Very devastating to us who want to drink wine. Yeah. Um, But who else is uh, this bunch rot terrible for? The winemakers. Of course. Because it creates a cause, it can cause wine growers lung, which is a rare form of hypersensitivity pneumonitis. I cannot pronounce this. In my family, we just call it pneumonimina, which is a respiratory allergic reaction in predisposed individuals. Oh my goodness. So it can't hurt you. But like, like, are they just more likely to get like pneumonia or? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I think you have to be like immunocompromised in order for that or like predisposed to have some sort of immune condition, but But maybe the breathing in this fungus all the time is gonna It's gonna do some bad stuff. Yeah. Like Oh no. People shouldn't have that kind of fungus in their life. Not like that concentrated much. and not yeah. in that form. No. Wait until it's done its business, please. Yeah. <laughs> um so um that's not the only fungus that affects wineries. Let's just briefly talk. Mm. And this is literally one sentence. No. So what other kinds of molds and funguses do we have in our wineries? We have powdery mildew, a mold that affects vineyards. We Ooh. got cork taint, which is truly oh. one of the worst phrases you've ever heard. <laughs> um, it causes airborne fungi that can come in contact with the chlorophenol compounds in wine. So there you go. Obviously, and that's from... It's in the cork. In the and cork, then yeah. when it interacts with the wine yeah, storage. Um, and then finally, we have black mold, which is a relatively harmless but ugly fungus <laughs> that inhabits dank cellars throughout Europe. Dank. Oh yeah, please. Please. We've all, we've we've all been a, to a cellar and we love a black experienced mold. a black mold. <laughs> um so now let's talk about Tokai. Woo-hoo. Um so actually no, I'm not gonna talk about Tokai now. Hang on, hang on. Edit that out, please. Don't make it make it you know it seamless? has to be seamless. Okay. Okay, first let's talk Australian dessert wines, mm. which is the evidence that this is the first kind of area of Botrytis, which is made in Bergenland and 1526 it was oh austrian i thought you said australian and i was like what no isn't it too hot did i say australian oh no you probably did say austrian i just anyway australia does have good botrytis affected wines i'm sure that it does yeah but But austria makes more sense as the original yeah originator the criminals were not yet making wine (laughs) over there is that racist against australians Ah, who cares they're fine they're literally the worst (laughs) anyways so, let me start this over. Mm-hmm. Edit this whole bit out. No. If we hone in on a Austri- Aust- fuck Austrian dessert wines, <laughs> there's evidence that an early Botrytis wine was made in Burgenland since it, at least 1526. It was Ooh. likely a trocken beer in Lausen. We have this historical like record of 1526, but mm-hmm. that is a lot earlier than all other kind of records date to. It's not oh. to say that it wasn't happening, but a, like the more common idea is that it's either kind of 1570s or 1600s. Oh wow! Yeah, so it seems weird that it would be that. 
I mean, I guess they didn't know that it was going to be delicious because it looks pretty ugly. So they're yeah. just like, well, I guess we've lost another. I also think that I don't, uh, I mean, this might be just a case of us trying to impose our kind of like views on ancient societies where mm. we think like, oh, they're so primitive and they didn't know. But I don't know. Like, I wonder how much like wine or vineyard management they were doing at the times. So, like, yeah, obviously it was a significant crop and it was like executed to like there was there was obviously care going into it like mm-hmm. i mean we look at ancient roman records there's conversations being had about what are the best vi- wineries but mm-hmm. they're perceiving it very differently in the sense that like it's not about a specific vintage it's just about whatever's oldest right and like they're mixing it with things so who's to say at what point it was turned into like kind of more scientific approach to it so i'm not sure and i don't want to impose my views on it maybe this has been around a lot longer maybe it hasn't maybe the mold just spontaneously developed Who's to say? Well, I think there's also, like we were talking about in terms of industrialization, mm-hmm. like in the, those early 1500s, it's like they're probably not producing on the kind of mass scale necessary. And they definitely don't have greenhouses. Yeah. So it's like maybe they're just like the conditions weren't as favorable for the botrytis. Like they weren't as tightly packed. Yeah. Year. But I don't think it has to do with how close they're planting the things together. Mm-hmm. It has to do with the clusters themselves. Being, right. Which is, I don't know. I don't like, know. Anyways. Yeah. It's or different grapes. Like it could be a hundred different things. hundred like yeah. that's the thing. There's just many reasons why it mm-hmm. could or couldn't have been there. And like perhaps it was before and we just don't have records of it. Maybe they're like, Oh, this one's sweet today. I don't know what's going on there. Yeah. Um, or they're just keeping it for themselves and not writing about it. Like, exactly. Who knows? But anyways, a sale of wine was recorded in sixteen fifty three when Prince Eston Hazy, which by the way, Eston Hazy, great name, incredible. purchased a container that was slowly enjoyed for the following two centuries. <laughs> yep. Cute. Um, this noble sweet wine dating to 1526 predates the origin legends of Botrytis wines in Hungary, Germany, and Bordeaux, which all attribute the origin of Botrytis-style wines to accidental late harvest in later centuries. Oh, there you go. If I just read further into these notes. Again, don't remember. The later harvest, I guess, makes sense, mm-hmm. but, like, I don't think that that's the only reason, and I no. definitely think that there were, like, conditions that were of around. Course. Of course. Anyways. Um, could the first Botrytis wine in Burgenland also be attributed to accidental late harvest? We don't know. Um, it's been a lot more of an integral part of the winemaking practice, especially in these countries like Germany, Hungary, um, Austria, since that 1600 or 16th right. century. Mm-hmm. Like, it becomes more f- intentional, which is, I guess, the point of this. Yeah. So in Burgenland, the Swewinkle subregion i know is especially good for sweet wines because of the unique wetlands vineyards creep to the edges of the wetlands and soak in the fog until intense sunshine burns it off so like we've talked about the fog is so integral to this and the sunlight is what keeps it in check yeah um do 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 but they're very like this area is very integral to it and i think moving like close to those wetlands is also important because you just have like that humid kind of climate Mm. being Mm -hmm. present there um now let's talk about Sauternes. Oh, yes. More importantly, let's talk about Chateau d'Iquen. Is that how I say it? I feel embarrassed. This is very... very I don't know. For me. Anyway, so, Pamier Cru Supérieur, so the superior first gross. Wine from the Sauternes Gironde region of the southern part of Bordeaux vineyards, known as Grave. Um, in the Bordeaux wine official classification of 1855, Chateau d'Iquen was the only Sauternes given this rating, indicating its perceived superiority and higher price of all other wines of its type. So, perceived superiority yes, is course. a very integral point there, I think. Classic. And also just, like, I feel like everybody gets so hung up on the, like, the super, like, premier clue, all of this. It's, like, 
It's just a way of like determining what was making the most money. I'm not saying that they're not yeah. incredible wines. Like, yeah. who am I mm-hmm. to cast any judgment there? No, but like it, it's oh, so much of this is geographic. <laughs> I feel like because yes. they're just in a better place for trade or just mm-hmm. like had better trade relationships. Again, not to say it wasn't a very excellent wine commanding the highest of prices, but like. This is literally only a rating that happens on the left bank because of the geography of, like, shipping. And also just, like, it's it's very interesting that mm. we've kept these designations. For, no one's surprised that like, the French <laughs> don't want to change it. They're like, we're fancy folk. They're like, I don't want to lose my yeah, primary my fancy crew. stuff. Yeah. And, like, there have been, like, amendments obviously made mm-hmm. to the list of which are, like, Premier Clue and all that. I mean, famously, we've had in, I believe, the 1970s, two first uh, growth were added to it. Mm-hmm. I'm blanking on the names, but anyways. <laughs> we all know what they are. They're the fancy ones. Um, Chateau de la Tour de Fitz, something like that. Anyways. Probably. So, 1593, Chateau de was acquired by Jacques de Sauvage in the December. Uh, he acquired the property from a French monarchy by exchanging other lands that he owned for what was then referred to as the House of Yquem. The site has been home to a vineyard since at least 1711, when the estate became fully owned by Léon de Sauvage de Yquem. In 1785, it passed to the Lourcelage family when Ikem married Count Louise Amédée de Surlosalus, a godson of Louis the Fifteenth and oh. Lady Victoire de France. Uh, Monsieur Lourcelius died three years later, and his wife subsequently focused her energy on sustaining and improving the estate. Cool. So it wasn't a vineyard when the first dude bought it. No, no, no. No, so they uh, did that like 200 years later. Yeah, exactly. And it was the... This wife that did the main... I think she was in charge of, like, uh, the house. Like, mm. maintaining the property, kind of. Right. Um, so, let's talk a little bit later. I didn't really want to talk about too much of the, like, earlier history. Mm. Um, Minister Plenipotentiary was in France with Thomas Jefferson. He visited the chateau and later wrote, Sauterne, this is the best white wine of France and is the best... No, why is Thomas Jefferson French? He's not... <laughs> Um, so time, this is the best white wine of France and the best of it made by Monsieur de Surlos. Oh my God, I can't talk. Uh, he ordered 250 bottles of the 1784 vintage for himself and additional bottles for George Washington, which cute. Nerds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, what I think is important to note here mm-hmm. is that this is not sweet wine, probably, at this time. Oh, yeah. No. They hadn't fully developed the technique for noble rot. Like, obviously, like we said, 1528, and then obviously the 1600s. Like, mm-hmm. it's happening. It's very much, a th- like, a practice. Yeah. But it's not to the same level, and a lot of wineries are not switched over fully to making, like... It's not like Chateau de Kim, which really... Only makes... They do make a dry white wine, but anyways. Um, but, like, predominantly mm-hmm. focuses on the sweet wines. And it maybe they're doing more kind of like that... German style where it's like if they have some they kind of throw it in the batch so it's like yeah off dry kind of a thing the yeah. suspect the suspicion is that it was less sweet so like not right. a sweet wine but it's like lightly sweet for sure also I'm sorry but side note literally yesterday when I went to the liquor store trying to do this I walked around trying to find something that was Bertardus affected couldn't find anything I literally waited for the person who worked there because I was like I gotta check because I sure mm-hmm. as hell wasn't going down to the other liquor store and Marquis was closed so I was like I'm too tired for this mm-hmm. shit um, so I'm like waiting there and this man this lovely man who actually was very knowledgeable and made a lot of like I don't know uh, anyways he was talking to this woman who like 
Oh, it was hard. It was real hard. I was barely holding on together. <laughs> She's like, well, I just like want a dry wine. Like I just oh, really like no. a dry wine. Oh, like no. I like Sauvignon Blanc, but it's just like so acidic. And I was just like, bitch, you don't like Sauvignon Blanc then. You just <laughs> heard one word and like don't understand. And it's so sad because like she's struggling to find a wine that she likes. And this man, bless him, was like very helpful to her. He was like really doing the Lord's work with this damn, dumb lady. Aww. He's like... Oh, so, like, you don't like how acidic Sauvignon Blanc is. She's like, yeah, but, like, I just really like a dry wine. So, like, that's what I usually drink. And he's like, have you heard of Pinot Gris? (laughs) And she's like, well, isn't that sweet? And he literally stopped her and goes, fruity flavor profile doesn't equal sweet. And I was like, doing the Lord's work here, sir. the Lord's work. Just like, He was so sweet. And then when I was like, y'all, do you got any Botrytis wine? He's like... Girl, I'm so sorry that you waited five fucking minutes for me to tell you that, no, we don't have any. And he was, like, so excited, too. Actually, it was really cute. He's like, you've got to go to the signature store because they have some great options, and I'm sorry we don't have them. And I was like, oh, Henry, you son of a bitch. After the 1968 death of the Marquis Bernard de Surlus, uh, Surlus... 1968? Yeah, this is a different dude. Like, There's so is, many Surluses? Yeah, he's, like, you know, the newest... Uh, no, it's actually Lure Salus, which I'm Lure not saying Salus. every time. Lure Salus, the Bernard de Sur- Lure Salus. <laughs> Just, anyways, when he died, the chateau was run by Comte Alexandre de Lure Salus, a minority 7% owner. Uh, the Comte inherited a typical annual comp- production of 66,000 bottles a year. After the 1973 oil crisis, demand fell and prices plummeted. Mm. The price, price of a bottle of Dichem dropped to 35 francs. Prices began to rise only in the 1980s. So the thing is, mm-hmm. is it baby boomers that killed accessibility to fine wines? How dare they? How dare all of this happen? How dare we be born too late to drink this sweet nectar for a reasonable price? Well... I mean, I think what it is is, yeah, like, then they drove up the price because everyone was like, ooh, like, I want, like, a sweet. (laughs) It's, there's something so 80s about drinking sweet wine. Oh, my God. It's the most 80s thing ever. (laughs) If you mixed Sauterne from Chateau Cam with Grenadine, that would be the most 80s thing that's ever happened in the history of the universe. Oh, my goodness. We were reading through the cookbook that Mm. my great aunt Dorothy gave to my mom. Mm. Incredible. And one of the one of the recipes is for um, like chicken rosé. <gasps> no, 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 no. <laughs> actually, I think we were reading through. We're like, you know what? Like this would actually probably not be that bad. But it's like one of those like it's like a chicken like casserole situation. Mm-hmm. And it's like yes, like any like rosé wine will do, such as uh, Portuguese Matus. <laughs> we're like, oh my oh, god, no. people are buying Matus. There is Matus everywhere in Portugal. I'm like, do you not know this is a bit? Yeah. I feel like I've bought it, like... <laughs> Just like, why not? Why, why not? not? I mean, honestly, should we buy it? Yeah, we should. Should we have an 80s dinner party? Obviously. <sighs> we'll wear shoulder pads and get really wasted. And <laughs> um, have a horrible headache the next day. Truly the worst. Yeah. Ugh, anyways. Okay, so under the Combs leadership, tractors replaced horses, collapsing cellars were renovated, and unused acreage was planted, with production in good years reaching 100,000 bottles and sales about 10 million. They didn't have tractors till the 80s? France is very particular. France is very, yeah. Okay, please continue. Um, <laughs> following a bitter family feud and the decision of Eugene de de Lure Salius, so his brother, um, to sell part of his 48% shares of the business. On 28th of November, 1996, uh, 
LVMH, Moet Hennessy, mm-hmm. Louis Vuitton bought 55% of the Chateau de Cam from the family. Of course. Um, for about $100 million. Wow. Wow. Yep. Uh, the Comte was kept as a manager for the estate. So, yeah, just another fucking huge conglomerate. Pardon my language, but, like, truly, what don't they own? It's so stupid. I know. But nobody's surprised. Nobody is surprised. It just makes me so sad. Yeah. Anyways. Um, 17th of May, 2004, the Comte retired and was replaced by the current managing director of uh, Chateau Cheval Blanc, Pierre Lurton. The Comte has been known for being particularly dedicated towards maintaining quality, going so far as to reject an entire batch of wine if he did not like the results of a randomized testing. Uh, 2006, a 135-year vertical containing every vintage from 1960 to 2003 was sold by the Antique Wine Company in London for $1.5 million, one of the highest prices ever paid for a single lot of wine. Also that year, Dior and Chateau de Kim created a skincare product made from the sap of the vines, which is really cool. That is cool. The thing I think that's also really cool here is that these bottles can age, hypothetically, for an incredibly long time. Yeah. Like, I think, was it Robert Parker who rated their, like, 100-year bottle? Like, he tried an 1899 and 1999, I think it wow. was. Rated it 100 points and was just like, this is... This which, is, again, the rating system is a whole for sure, conversation, but... but it's like this is something that can age for so long and again what does it that concentration of sweetness mm-hmm. and acidity yeah because it can go for oh, it can hand handle it exactly uh july 2011 on an 1811 bottle of the strategy came sold for uh seventy-five thousand pounds so uh dollars at the ritz hotel london to a private collector christian van Eke. yep uh became the most expensive bottle of white wine ever sold wow so, and what like, can you do? So whenever I think about that kind of stuff, it's mm-hmm. like, on the one hand, I think it's so cool that the wine still exists, but then mm-hmm. on the other hand, I'm like, no one's going to drink it. This is the thing. Like, are you going to have a $117,000 glass of wine? No, obviously not. And it's so sad too, because wine is meant to be drank. Like, mm-hmm. that's the point of it all. Especially this wine that can stand, like, maybe not like... 200 years of aging but no maybe not not i was listening to this really interesting podcast that lauren my cousin sent me mm-hmm. um about uh the cult of fine wine and mm-hmm. how these bottles really like they are not wine anymore they're just no. investments and that's like such a tragedy in something that is such a finite thing and something that somebody like actively like, can you imagine telling the farmhand <clears throat> that like went and picked those grapes yeah by the way i'm not actually gonna drink this fuck you fuck your effort no i'm just gonna buy it for a ridiculous amount of money and then sell it 10 years later for an even more ridiculous amount of money and like it, whatever it's i just have it sit in my cellar and do like tours like the fucking crypt keeper i am i'm thinking of the Koch brothers yeah <laughs> yeah Ugh. yes <laughs> <laughs> anyways now Yes. It's finally time to talk about Tokai. It's Tokai time. Which I pronounced as Tokaji for literally years because I think it sounds better that way. But See, I was wanting to be like Tokaj. It's technically Tokai. Yeah. Yes. Like with a toe in there. I was reading about it and I saw it spelt with a K-A-Y. And I was like, this is just lazy. Interesting. Uh, we'll get there in a second. <laughs> Hang on because I do have a bit of a bat. Yeah. Um, so, Jokai is a sweet wine made from Botardus-affected grapes, obviously, or else we wouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> the most desirable of the Tokai wines, and subsequently the most expensive, is the Tokai Essencia, a mm. liquid goo, basically, goo. that contains as much sweetness as straight syrup. Oh my it's so intense that this is typically enjoyed from a tablespoon. Because of the sh- high sugar content, it will age for those 200 plus years. Oh my god. And would it get more liquidy? More- 
Probably would get thicker, right? Yeah, I was going to say I think thicker. But it's just like all of those interesting flavors that are so traditional like of Tokai are going to like enrich. I mean, my favorite bit is that when I first had it, it was described as being like apricots and honey and mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Like it's mm-hmm. so weird. Ugh. I remember you calling it mushroom wine for... yeah forever it's so good it just has such a special place in my heart um let's see speaking to your uh spelling in alsace france and even friuli italy mm. uh producers even donned the words tokai so t-o-k-a-y or mm-hmm. t-o-k-a-i on their labels to capture buyers because this did get to be so popular for a point yeah um this can recently or um, let's see. Hang on. Okay. I always have one note ahead. <laughs> this confusion resulted in the classification of the vineyards of Tokai in 1730, mm. which led to a noble decree made in 1757, which established the closed production district of Tokai. So basically that's when they were like, hey guys, no more. But I think you can't any, just call it this. Yeah. I think alternative yeah. spellings are just a, um, like a holdover from that. Or like a Tokai style wine kind of a yeah. thing. You can call it with an AY. Like yeah. Okay. Um, Tokai can only be made from six native varieties and still receive the Tokai designation. Enjoy me butchering these. <laughs> Ferment. Oh yeah. Harsh Levelu. Kabar. Kuvair Sulu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Zaytu. Ooh. Oh, God. Uh, Muscoti, which is also known as Muscat Blanc. Very good. <laughs> I made it through. So, the Asu berries are collected in large baskets. These are the, like, affected berries, basically, mm-hmm. um, in baskets called Putoni, and are added in measured amounts to barrels of non-botrytis grape must. Then mm-hmm. the wines are produced and labeled based on how many asu baskets were added to the must. Thus, the system of labeling wines three to six putoni was developed. <laughs> There's so many trail-offs in this episode. I can't say these words. I'm very sorry. I do not have it in me. It's fine. I stopped knowing how to read a very long time ago. I think I've just memorized enough words to get through the day, and I don't know how to sound things out. It's actually very embarrassing. It's okay. Um, anyways, wine called Essencia is a wine made entirely of the Asu grapes. So there's mm. no mm-hmm. non-Botrytis-affected grapes. Wow. So it's so sweet. Practically syrup. Makes it difficult for yeast to ferment sugar into alcohol. It takes several years, usually four to five, to fully ferment this wine. Wow. I know. Um, even with this long period of fermentation, they rarely ferment to over 3% alcohol by volume. So are they just like adding more yeasts every time the fermentation stops? Like how do they... I guess. I don't know. Whatever. Like it's yeah. clearly some magic is going on in those vineyards. Yeah. Um, in greenhouse horticulture, Botrytis scenario is causing damage to tomatoes. Like I said, rhubarb, strawberries, all that stuff. But this is... The single greatest product that has ever created is Tokai. And that's all I have for you. Thank you for listening to Half of Words. It's incredible. Perfect. Thank you. Anyways, Botrytis. It's for the girls. It's delicious. Yeah, we stand. Thank you for listening to this season, everybody. Yeah, it's been an absolute delight. Mm-hmm. I think next season we had briefly discussed doing um, specific instances in history and looking at those, like, like really zoning in. So, like... Mm-hmm. What were they eating during the French Revolution? What were they eating during 
coal mining times. Like, yes. I don't know, like specific, like, yeah, I let's think... look here at this, like, location and time period. Yeah. So I think getting more specific with time period, less specific about a food. Yeah. If that makes sense. So it's so going to be... So that's our thoughts for next Yeah. Which... We do not have a quippy title yet. Oh, God, no. We might never. Probably not. <laughs> um, follow us on Instagram at Pantry Staples Pod. Rate, review, subscribe. Also follow us in the streets. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> Please don't do that. No. <laughs> I'm too scared. <laughs> Have I told you about my theory of reverse stalking? <laughs> it's think. when you walk in front of somebody the whole way home and then you turn around and go, ha! <laughs> uh, I've yet to do it, so don't worry, guys. <laughs> I have no, I have no, no follow I have no follow-ups for that yeah. one. Um, <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. Have a lovely time. Okay, bye. <laughs>